came home. Was it a lovely homecoming with celebratory bunting and lots of cake? Or was it a party one couldn't wait to leave? In the first of a number of Palace episodes I will be devoting to Star Wars as we barrel on down the road to the release of The Force Unleashed, I thought it would be a lot of fun to look at the new Marvel series and see if they were worth the hype. But when I were allowed, there was only one Star Wars comic to pick up. It was weekly and went through a number of different titles and formats, but it was one comic. If you read the American editions, you still had one comic, albeit monthly instead of weekly, and in shiny full colour rather than glorious oversized monochrome. It was a perfectly acceptable situation, and across the run Marvel basically published one Star Wars comic, with the exception of a four-issue miniseries adapting Return of the Jedi and a couple of annuals. However, this is not then, and comics companies don't seem to be happy nowadays unless a book is part of a line of books, a franchise of titles. Even before Star Wars number one shipped, we knew there would be an ongoing Darth Vader series and a number of miniseries being published alongside. The first of these, Princess Leia, would be a five-issue miniseries and a Lando Calrissian miniseries was announced as a follow-up, also being five issues. Spinning out of the Star Wars Rebels cartoon, Marvel announced a Kanan the Last Padawan ongoing, filling in the blanks of Kanan Jarrus' early days. To be fair, there was a little scepticism from me regarding the quality of the books, if so many were being announced so soon. Now, I do need to disclose here that, with rare exceptions, I didn't really follow the Dark Horse published material. I read some of it, the big events like Dark Empire and the the reprints of the newspaper strips. That was pretty much it. For whatever reason, the Dark Horse era was one I largely skipped over. I felt that there was a lot of it, perhaps too much, and to keep up with it all, I would be struggling. It kind of took on the same role the X-Men did in my reading. I used to like it, but now it was too dense and there was too much product for me to be able to follow. It was the same with the novels, where I stuck with the standalone books like Scoundrels, Shadows of the Empire, or Luke Skywalker and the Shadows of Mindor, rather than the longer ten-book cycles. However, Marvel taking back the rights to Star Wars, which was inevitable after Disney bought both, plus the excitement surrounding the new movie had me in a Star Wars frame of mind again, and I elected to pick up the new books. After all, all that money I wasn't spending on DC Comics had to go somewhere, right? The main Star Wars title was written by Jason Aaron with art by John Cassidy, and the first story arc ran for six issues. When I recently recorded a Palace episode about all the times there have been Star Wars stories set immediately after the first film, I mentioned that Star Wars number one has had over 100 variant covers. Since that episode was recorded, issue number one has gone through six printings, and even the issues after that have also had multiple print runs, indicating that the series has been a massive success for Marvel. I mentioned in the previous episode that I wasn't a fan of John Cassidy as a rule, finding his work rather stiff and overly photo-referenced. He's not bad at still images, but comics are sequential storytelling, not just a panel of stills with no continuity. The covers to the six issues of the series are all by Cassidy. Issue 1 is a poster image that I covered last time, so there's no need to harp on about that again. Issue 2 has a more comedic cover, with Han and Chewie hid behind a scrap pile, as Vader, a phalanx of stormtroopers, and some at-at and at stand in the background. Not 
bad, but Vader looks a little wonky. And it's the first, but not the last, time that something from later in the saga will be employed. Here it's the aforementioned AT-T and AT-ST walkers, which don't appear until Empire and Jedi respectively. This can be irritating if overdone, as it appears to be done here, because issue 3 also has an element yet to be introduced. Here it's Luke, on a speeder bike, swinging his lightsaber with reckless abandon and picking off stormtroopers. Luke is pretty awful looking. He has a very squat body. Looks like he has no neck. When the hosts of Growing Up Star Wars mentioned this trend of using future elements within the stories before they happen, I thought it was a bit of an overreaction. But as the series has continued and this trend hasn't let up, I think they may be onto something. Issue 4 continues the trend of evoking the original trilogy, which seems to have been the marketing push for the new movies. Vader duplicates Luke's winsome stirring at the twin sons of Tatooine, whilst issue 5 goes back to the photo reference. Here it's a mix and match. The shot of Han and Leia are publicity images of Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher from Star Wars. The shot of Luke, though, is a publicity image of Mark Hamill from Cloud City in The Empire Strikes Back, but Cassidy has altered his clothes. Issue 6 sees Luke swing his lightsaber as viewed through a crosshair. There's nothing wrong with any of these covers, despite some minor artistic problems I personally have. They aren't as dramatic or as gloriously over the top as the original Marvel series, but that kind of melodramatic cover is out of favour these days. The sixth issue arc was called Skywalker Strikes and follows our heroes initially on a mission to destroy Cymoon 1, an Imperial weapons factory, but they are busted when Vader arrives and Luke decides to free a bunch of slaves. Han agrees with Luke, but Luke nearly has his head handed to him after a confrontation with Vader, who is looking for the pilot that blew up the Death Star. Luke escapes, Burley, when Han commandeers an at-at walker and uses it to aid their escape, although Vader makes it very difficult for them. They manage to get to the Falcon and blast off, and we all end up on Tatooine! Again. For the planet that is the farthest from the centre of the universe, we certainly spend a lot of time there. Vader is visiting Jabba the Hutt to negotiate for the Emperor. Boba Fett is there, asking about Obi-Wan Kenobi. A strange unknown figure is there, asking all about Han Solo, and Luke has just quit the Rebels to return there on a daring mission to find himself. With Luke gone, Leia turns to Han to aid her in another dangerous mission, after which she promises she'll get Han the parts he needs to fix the Falcon after the damage it sustained on Simon Wan. Turns out they are looking for a new rebel base in a stolen Imperial shuttle, but Han jumps the gun when they come upon an Imperial patrol and they are forced to hide out in the Monsura Nebula. The atmosphere of the Nebula is electrical, disabling all Imperial ships, but Han knows a way around this. So does the stranger from earlier, who is following Han and Leia. On Tatooine, Luke arrives at Ben's place and sees off a gaggle of sand people. They've ransacked the house, but R2 spots a diary labelled for Luke. Before he can open it, a flash grenade blinds Luke and Boba Fett stands at the doorway. Boba learned of Luke from an old friend of his and headed to Ben's place. And they have a fanish confrontation, but they avoid any continuity issues by having Luke be blind for the whole thing. Luke, for the second time in this arc, survives a major confrontation with an established badass by dumb luck when Artu throws the journal from earlier at Boba Fett's head. 
Howard Journal manages to knock out Fed, who is wearing protective headgear, isn't explained. Meanwhile, Han and Leia have landed on the idyllic oasis, and Han tries to seduce Leia with Corellian wine, this location be one of Han's bolt holes. They are interrupted by Han's wife, Sana Solo, who was the mysterious figure from earlier on who's been following them. Elsewhere, Fetch reports to Vader that he has found out the name of the man who destroyed the Death Star, Skywalker. Of all the Star Wars books currently being published by Marvel, this is the one that is the most uneven. Taken at face value, Aaron does a good job with the action and his dialogue is snappy in places, although the Leia-Han conversations do often feel like retreads of Empire. The story is paced well, and although there isn't a lot to it, what there is is fun to read. However, the problems are also evident from the get-go. There's an awful lot here that takes in moments lines of dialogue and scenes that echo the movies, but they are echoing movies that the characters haven't yet lived through. We have Vader and Luke engaged in a brutal lightsaber battle, which is fun, but undermines Empire, which I always thought should be the first time the duo actually meet in a fight. Of course, Vader met Luke a few times in the original Marvel series prior to Empire, and they had a lightsaber duel in Splinter of the Mind's Eye, so it's not without precedent. There are other elements that also don't sit as well. Han being able to pilot an at-at is a minor point, and seeing Vader can take out an at-at is a great scene. But C-3PO being ripped apart and the Falcon being trashed and referred to as junk is homaging Empire without adding anything new. Likewise, Vader losing his helmet in the battle on the Psy Moon should not happen. Ever. Vader should not lose his helmet and mass like this. It just feels a bit fanish and too similar to the Spider-Man movies where Spidey keeps taking his mask off just so we can see the actor. In fact, the fanish complaint can be levelled at the series generally with too many moments that seem more like fan fiction. I also had a problem with Leia piloting the Falcon. Brian Wood's series over at Dark Horse has Leia being an established X-Wing pilot and here we see her fly the Falcon alone. I don't buy it. If Leia could fly, she'd have been in the Battle of Yavin. No arguments. No one would have stopped her from being up there with everybody else, because she had had just as much chance of dying on Yavin as in the sky. This is a retcon that bugs me slightly. Leia can be as strong a character as the writer needs her to be. She can be as handy with a blaster, as quick with a quip, as headstrong, as stubborn, as funny as any of the male characters. But having her be a pilot is flat out making her the same as everyone else. So Leia isn't a pilot, so what? She's still awesome. And this just felt wrong. It also felt a little wrong to have Boba Fett in this and have Luke return to Tatooine so soon after saying, never coming back here again. I think this makes more sense for him to only return in Jedi. There's still a lot to like here. Aaron's character beats are satisfying, and the pacing of the story is quick and action-packed. Some of his dialogue is funny, and there is a lovely moment in Jabba's palace, where Jabba says, Who of note was ever born on Tatooine? Ho, 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 to Vader. And Vader's impassive mask, just looking across the Tatooine plain, speaks volumes without any dialogue. The frenetic feel of Empire is also evoked very well, with the idea reinforced that the Rebels got lucky in Star Wars due to the Emperor's belief that the Death Star was the ultimate power in the universe, but now he's really out to crush them. There's also a subtle nod to the prequels in the later issues, where we see Leia in an outfit similar to Padme's from Attack of the Clones, which was nice, as the marketing of the new film seemed to be out to make us forget the prequels existed. 
Sadly, we've seen a lot of this before, though. The seeking out of the pilot that blew up the Death Star has been done at least twice, as has the Rebels looking for a new base. But this is a main Star Wars book, presumably aimed at readers not familiar with those stories. And in that regard, it works well. The addition of Sarna Solo is less welcome. The adding of a wife we never knew about is a terrible soap opera cliché, and I never buy it. I didn't buy it in Babylon 5, and I don't buy it here. And don't give me the whole, they never said Han wasn't married, guff. They never said he doesn't have three nipples either, but I doubt that he does. On the whole, though, this is a strong, if flawed, debut for the new series. If the main series has been enjoyable, if a bit hit or miss, Marvel have really scored with the other regular title, Darth Vader. Written by Kieran Gillen and drawn by Salvador La Roca, this Darth Vader series has been consistently good on an issue-by-issue basis, and perhaps surprised Marvel with how popular it's been. In fact, with this series, the arrival of Vader, the badass on Rebels, and the shot of his melted face mask in the Force Awakens trailer, I hope we are entering a golden age of Vader, the no-nonsense, single-minded bad guy of Empire, rather than the neutered plush toy of recent years. Simply entitled Vader the First Arc again lasts six issues, and a clever move from Marvel happens concurrently with the events of the main series. The six covers are all by Adi Granov and are all effective, but simple poster images of Vader being a badass, Vader posing with his foot up, lightsaber extended, Vader taking out some trade federation droids, Vader clashing his lightsaber and Vader and the Emperor. They're all good, but some variety would have been nice. Only issues 2 and 3 are slightly different, and with issue 2 it's because it's not very good. Vader strides through an Imperial corridor as General Tag looks on. It's a slightly ridiculous image. Vader's cape is billowing behind him, implying there's a breeze, which is silly, not least because Vader isn't Superman and there shouldn't be a breeze on a Star Destroyer. Issue 3 only has Vader as a background presence, with three new characters, Dr. Aphra and two droids, Triple Zero and BT-1, taking the foreground. These became big characters for some reason, and issue 3 was hard to get a hold of. I must therefore thank Matt Evans and Mike Moran, who both hooked me up with a copy. As with the main series, the title for this is Minimalist, just called Vader. On Coruscant, Vader reports to the Emperor on the events of Cymoon 1. The Emperor kills the commander of the plant and blames Vader for this affront, as well as the destruction of the Death Star. With the devolution of the Senate, the Empire has never been this vulnerable, and Vader must now report to General Tag, who left the Death Star before its destruction. It may be Taggy, I don't know. The Emperor has also been taking secret meetings with shady individuals, and Vader would like to know who they are. Vader also neglects to mention to the Emperor about his confrontation with a would-be Jedi who had Anakin Skywalker's lightsaber. He takes his leave to follow his own agenda. This agenda includes a visit to Jabba a day before he should officially be there to ask a favour, only to return on his official business, as seen in the main series later on. The favour that Vader requires is a bounty hunter to locate the boy he met on Cymoon 1. Jabba sends Boba Fett and the Wookiee Kirsten Black. Vader, meanwhile, under Taggy's command, is investigating the raiders taking out the Imperial shipping and discovers that his new adjutant, who is to watch Vader at all times, is in fact a traitor, supplying the raiders with the Imperial routes. Vader takes great pleasure in informing Taggy of his gaffe. Still, Vader was impressed by the battle droids and he tracks down Dr. Aphra, who designed them. He has need of her gifts. After all, an army at his command may come in useful. They head to Genosis, where they find a droid army, and Vader takes command of it. 
He also tells Aphra that she is useful to him, and as long as she stays that way, she will live. Black returns with the man the Emperor was speaking to earlier, and Vader sets Triple Zero on it. Triple Zero torches the information out of the man, and Black and Vader learn that the Emperor is recruiting potential replacements for him. Vader decides to go and see these replacements for himself with his droid army, and finds people not one with the Force, rather cyborgs and other augmented beings. Vader believes this is blasphemous, and prepares to strike, but the Emperor prevents him from taking action. To impress the Emperor, the new race are set upon Vader, but Vader proves himself. The Emperor is pleased, for now. Vader, however, is angry, and even more so when Boba Fett arrives to tell him the name of the destroyer of the Death Star, Luke Skywalker. Vader considers telling the Emperor, but decides that with the son of Skywalker, he could rule the galaxy himself. First off, despite really enjoying this series and the writing, I have to say I do feel it proceeds from a false assumption. In Star Wars, Vader was the only one to speak out against the Death Star. He didn't think it was the bee's knees that everybody else thought it was, and clearly thought that the Emperor was putting all his eggs in one basket. When the shit hit the fan, it was Vader that captured the Princess Leia, Vader that found the Rebel base, and Vader that single-handedly took out most of the Rebel fighters. For that, it's always been my assumption that the events of Empire were his reward, the Emperor basically acknowledging Vader was right, and giving him carte blanche to wipe this rebel scum from the galaxy forever, by any means necessary. How else to explain that Vader goes from being a high-ranking officer, but one people still talk back to and was subordinate to Tarkin in Star Wars, to having command of an entire fleet of super star destroyers in Empire? For that reason, I didn't really buy that the Emperor blamed Vader for the failure of the Death Star. Within the story, it's stated that this is basically the Emperor keeping Vader in his place. It kind of works in that vein, but it doesn't jibe with what we saw on screen. It does, however, provide a decent reason for Vader to go against the Emperor and follow his own agenda. This leads us to the main strengths of the series, the magnificent cross-continuity between the books with scenes taking place before, around, and after the main book. This gives them a feeling of importance, far more than it should have as the second Star Wars title, and by extension makes the main book seem better. Both books ending with the same scene was also an interesting touch. Lorca's art is stunning throughout much better than Cassidy's. However, there's still an over-reliance on photo reference, and some of the panels are direct recreations of movie publicity stills. It's only really annoying in certain cases, such as the famous still from Revenge of the Sith, which Lorca seemingly uses at least once an issue. Still, Lorca is able to convey a ton of emotion from Vader, despite the mask, and he does it with a simple tilt of the head or close-up. Aphra is an inverted Indiana Jones, just as Triple Zero and BT-1 are inverted 3PO and R2. Whereas Indy thinks that antiquities should be in a museum, Aphra thinks they should be in an armory. And whereas R2 and 3PO are benign, Triple Zero and BT-1 are torture droids. It's not subtle, but it works, and the relationship between Aphra and Vader has become a highlight, her making known bones about the fact that he will one day kill her and asking it to be a quick lightsaber pop through the neck. That's actually quite a chilling scene in how matter-of-fact it is. Ultimately, we learn that the Emperor has always been preparing for replacing Vader, and there is a stunning scene at the end of the issue where, after Vader learns from Boba Fett the name of the warrior that destroyed the Death Star, he plays over in his mind the events from the prequel, including Palpatine lying to him about Padme. He then simmers with rage, cracking the plastic glass window that's all that protects him from being blown out into space. 
This one scene gives Vader a genuine reason for hating Palpatine, for going ahead behind his back in Empire, and even ultimately betraying the Emperor in Return of the Jedi. This was a wonderful piece of writing, taking what we know and adding to it, contradicting nothing but making the disparate elements from the films work together. This title was a great surprise in the new Marvel comic sticks, and Darth Vader has quickly become a must-read title. Next up was a mini-series that was to complement the main book. As a five-issue series, Princess Leia was written by Mark Wade with art by Rachel and Terry Dodson. All five of the covers are by the Dodsons and are all simple poster images easy to replicate on merchandise and trade paperback reprints. There's not really a lot to say about them as they're all just variations on Princess Leia posing with a gun. Even the title is just Princess Leia. Accused of being an ice princess by the rebels, Leia takes to the skies against Dodonna's orders to find other surviving Alderanians after learning that the Emperor is hunting them down and killing them for her part in the destruction of the Death Star. Alongside R2-D2 and an Alderanian X-Wing pilot named Evan, Leia and company manage to rescue a cloister of survivors from Naboo. They then head to Sullust to rescue another band, but the Alderanians in this group are openly hostile to Leia, paranoid and afraid. It doesn't help that Leia has somebody on her ship feeding information to the Emperor, and they follow Leia to Sullust and attack. R2 saves the day, because he's R2, and Leia convinces the Celestian Alderanians to follow her, although they clearly have their own agenda. Leia finds a traitor in their midst, a young girl, Tace, who's been chatting with her sister, Tula, who, unbeknownst to Tace, is a captive of the Imperials. Leia agrees to swap herself for Tula. Leia has a plan, though, and the end numbered Evan managed to rescue her, and the fleet of surviving Alderanians manages to fight their way free of the Imperial blockade, hopefully to go to a new home planet. This was also a mixed bag. On the plus side, Leia is snarky and often quite funny under Mark Wade's pen, and the fact that she needs a pilot to fly her everywhere seems to support what I said earlier about Leia's piloting skills. She has a number of funny lines in her banter between herself and Evan positively crackles. Ivan is a female pilot and apparently took part in the Battle of Yavin in some capacity, although I'm struggling to see how this can be. She's certainly at the award ceremony afterwards in full X-Wing regalia. Ivana starts out at odds with Leia, accusing her of being uncurring and unemotional in the face of her home planet's destruction. And this is the theme of the story, Leia making her peace with what happened and that the Empire could not have destroyed Alderaan if not for her. Evan is an okay character. She reminded me a little of Winter from the EU continuity, a girlfriend and confidant for Leia, but one who can handle herself in a fight. But whereas Winter was cool, calm and collected, Evan just comes across as a female Luke, right down to wearing his clothes. We see her clad in the orange X-Wing pilot outfit in Chapter 1, and for the rest of the story she wears what Luke wore to the awards ceremony, the yellow jacket and black shirt and pants. It's possible that that's just the current trend in the galaxy at the moment. Starting the story directly at the end of Star Wars is also a horrible misstep. In this telling, immediately as the credits roll for us, Leia gives a speech that kills the mood and brings everybody down. I'm glad they ended the film where they did. There's also the requisite addition of a new characters that are old to viewers of the trilogy. Apparently both Admiral Akbar and Mon Mothma were on Yavin during the events of Star Wars, and this is where we meet Nien Nunb for the first time. There's some decent action and the art is great. A lot of people seem to have been dismissive of the Dodson's art in this series, complaining that it's too cartoony. That's what I liked about it. There seemed to be far less photo reference in this series than the other two. What's wrong with cartoony anyway? This reminded me of the old Marvel series or their Indiana Jones comics. 
Leia may not look exactly like Carrie Fisher, but she looks enough like Princess Leia that I'm fine with it. On the whole, this is better as a read than the main series, simply because it doesn't feel like a greatest hits package, and it's nice seeing Leia out on her own without the boys, but it's a tad behind the Vader series in overall ranking. The biggest surprise, though, has been Kanan, the last Padawan. In fact, everything about Star Wars Rebels has been a surprise. When it was first announced, there was a sizeable outcry from viewers and fans of The Clone Wars, which had apparently developed a loyal following over the years, from those who felt it redeemed the prequels, to those younger viewers for whom this was Star Wars. As such, the odds were stacked against Rebels, as it already had two strikes against it, from those that felt cancelling Clone Wars was wrong-headed, to those that opposed Disney buying Star Wars in the first place. Against all odds, the first hour-long Rebels episode, Seeds of Rebellion, was a lot of fun, if a tad too slavish to Star Wars, with repeated music cues and often shot-for-shot recreations of scenes from the film. However, over the first season, the show developed and changed. The characters became deeper and more compelling, and the stories more interesting and nuanced. Then, in a move that won over the remaining Clone Wars holdouts, the series introduced an older Asuka Tano, not only securing Clone Wars place in the new canon of Star Wars, but adding a depth to the Rebels series in the process. Suddenly, it felt like it existed in the same universe as the movies and other TV shows. Billy Dee Williams had already made an appearance as Lando Calrissian, but Asuka gave the show a weight that it didn't have previously, and the second season premiere, The Siege at Lothal, added to this further with the introduction of Darth Vader, and having him be played by James Earl Jones. The Siege at Lothal was as good an hour of Star Wars as you're likely to see, and the conclusion, where Vader realises that Asuka still lives, was an emotionally satisfying moment of Star Wars, as anything they've done so far. Now, I'll be honest... If there was going to be a series that I didn't buy from Marvel, it was going to be this one. That it was to delve into the past of one of the regular characters of Rebels, Kane and Jarrus, voiced in the series by Mr. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Fred Prince Jr., also didn't really appeal to me. And then I really started to enjoy Rebels, and started to waver. Add to that the announcement that Greg Wiseman, who not only worked on the show, but was the guiding light behind the fantastic, spectacular Spider-Man cartoon, was writing it, and I couldn't help myself. Like the Vader and Star Wars series, Kanan is an ongoing series written, as I say, by Wiseman with art by Pepe Larraz. Essentially taking the Rebels' characters and placing them in the Clone Wars cartoon, we learn that Kanan was originally named Caleb Doom, and that his master was Deepa Bilba, a member of the High Jedi Council. As with all Jedi, he was betrayed by the clone troopers, and Bilba was killed protecting him. He flees and tries to make it to Coruscant, just as he receives a message from Obi-Wan that tells him, under pain of death, do not go to Coruscant. He then falls into the employ of a thief named Casimir. This was a masterful couple of issues that sadly at the time of recording had not concluded its first arc, but if these are anything to go by, it won't be disappointing. The first issue has a Canaan at peace, a Padawan who has finally found what he was looking for, only to have it all torn asunder when the troopers he considered best friends turn on him and Bilaba. He stands frozen as they attack, whilst Bilaba fights for their survival, and it's a great moment. But it's not just the character moments. Wiseman nails action scenes as well, which are really frenetic, and more importantly, very Star Wars. Of all the series thus far, this is the one I was probably looking forward to the least, and the one that has been the most enjoyable. Vader is probably the best of the books, but this is probably the most fun. As of this recording, there have been a few more announcements following the conclusion of the Leia series. Another mini will debut starring Lando Calrissian that came out this week as I record this. Again, I didn't really have high hopes for this. I've nothing against writer Charles Sewell, what little of his work I've read, I've enjoyed, but Alex Maleev is one of my least favourite modern-day artists. 
His art seems to consist largely of tracing images in a photorealistic way and overusing the copy and paste button to replicate panels to save him doing any redrawing. I always felt the guy should have had his page rate reduced by how many panels on that page were simple copies of his previous work. In addition, the plot sounded very like the Timothy Zahn novel Scoundrels, in that it was being promoted as a heist story. Scoundrels was okay, but it only came out last Christmas, and so is still relatively recent in the mind. I picked it up simply because I am buying so few new comics largely due to expense, and this was the only one out this week I was even remotely interested in. As predicted, the first issue was okay, nothing jaw-dropping. Unlike the Kanan series, it wasn't a pleasant surprise in how good it was, but nor did it stink up the room. It was okay, no more, no less. Hopefully Sewell will do something interesting with it before it wraps up. Another announcement has been a miniseries set directly after Return of the Jedi, written by Greg Rucker, and a Chewbacca series has been scheduled. All told, the return of Star Wars to Marvel has been pretty good. Nothing's outright sucked, but a few more stories set outside of the gaps in between Star Wars and Empire wouldn't go amiss. Generation Star Wars is speaking up and sharing its story. I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm David Michelini. I'm Tom Panneries. I'm Steve Glosson. I'm Matt Hunsworth. I'm Scott Gardner. I'm Ryan Shaw. I'm Paul Herman. I'm Jimmy Mack. I'm Ryder Waldron. I'm Justin Bolger. I'm Joseph Tavano. I'm John Jackson Miller. I'm Concetta Parker. I'm Steve Sansweet. And this. And this. And this. Is my Star Wars story. Is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars War story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story monthly at mystarwarsstory.com and available in the iTunes store. Okay, let's have a look at a couple of emails. See this uh that one was a nice tidy 30 minutes. The first email, this Palace of Spectacular Delights was from Chris Franklin. Hello Andy. I really enjoyed the spectacular Spider-Man series and thus your show on season one. I will admit to not seeing every episode in order, but my son was hooked on it, and it still counts less among his favourite television shows. Right from the start, I felt the series captured the Lee Ditko Romita vibe better than any other attempt at Spidey outside of comics. Yeah, they mixed up later characters and alternate realities, but they really did achieve that Batman the Animated Series-like level of near-perfect synthesised Spider-Man. No small feat. I was always have a soft spot from the original 60s series, and when reading those great Lee Ditko Marvel Tales reprints in the 80s, I heard that music and those voices, and it worked. As you said, they adapted the source material fairly faithfully. The Bakshi years are not only psychedelic, but the reliance on the same stock footage of Spidey swinging around the city makes them hard to watch nowadays. You just want to look forward to the new bits in each show. The 1980s solo Spidey animated series was added to the syndication package of the 60s cartoon. So imagine my surprise when one day I got 60s near crew-cut Peter Parker in his suit and tie, and the next day we got Wilder Hood Peter in turtleneck and denim jacket. I really enjoyed this series and felt it was slightly less cartoony than Amazing Friends on the whole. They both produced episodes based on roughly the same script, the first Green Goblin episode, and the solo series was slightly more realistic. The 90s series, wow. I watched it at the time, but my god, the pacing on that thing is awful. Everyone talks extremely fast, trying to cram in as much drama into an episode as possible. There's no time to establish mood, setting, or even motivation. The actors go way over the top in their delivery. It always seemed extremely rushed, although I understand a generation of kids younger than me, I was in college when this debuted, consider this the Spider-Man. Spider-Man Unlimited had Batman Beyond MV and I never watched the MTV series. The new Ultimate Spider-Man is definitely aimed squirrely at kids and I feel there is little there for adults to hang on to other than the occasional bone they throw us. 
great show as always, Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. It was a good rundown of the Spider-Man cartoons then. I went on with Chris to discuss an episode of the 70s television show. We did the pilot. And if you want to go back and look through the Hey Kids comics archives, Michael, my son, and I did an episode devoted to the uh, clone episode of the 70s TV show. But I pretty much agree with Chris on, on what he says about those cartoons. I'm normally in agreement with Chris. We're very simpatico, me and Chris. Jason Franklin... Not Jason Franklin. <laughs> I called Chris Mike Franklin on Hey Kids and now I'm calling him Jason. Jason Trenner, sorry, has emailed in. Hey, something for the Palace of Glittering Delights. Um, the A-Team theme song, or at least a remix, is in Super Robot Wars. Goes to show a great theme song will end up in the oddest of places. And he sent me a YouTube link just to know I'm not kidding. Uh, looking forward to whatever you want to explore in the palace next, which hopefully will be an episode about Star Trek and Axar, because that one looks to be worth a watch. I'd never heard of Star Trek and Axar before Jason emailed in, but it does look quite interesting. They've got some... It's one of those crowdfunder things, or self-funded things, but it's got Richard Hatch in it, and um, Gary Graham's in it, and it seems like they've got a lot of real proper actors in it, so I don't know how they've pulled that off, but yeah, it looks like it's worth checking out. Cowboy Heroes. Well, kind of. It's from Gene Hendricks. Andy, you covered The Greatest American Hero, The A-Team, Red Dwarf, Battlestar Galactica, Doctor Who, Quantum Leap, Star Trek, and Castle. Did my wife give you a list of shows that are guaranteed to grab my attention? Yes, there's a mix of great, good, and downright silly in these episodes, but I remember loving all of them. Regardless, as you said, they were all fun to watch, even today. At least they are to me, and it sounds like they are to you, at the very least, if not to laugh at the silliness. Good job pointing out the good, bad, and ugly of all versions. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I really do like Gene's, uh, Gene's shows. He's a regular emailer in to listen to The Prophets, which is the Deep Space Nine podcast I do with, uh, with Sean Engel and Paul Spatera. And um, he does a number of good podcasts himself. The Hammer Podcast, the Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks, as well as having the Hammer Strikes blog spot, which is well worth reading. He just recently covered um, uh, the Daredevil television series. Chris Franklin does Supermates with his, his Mrs. Cindy, so you should go and cheat that out as well. Speaking of Chris, Cowboy Up! Chris has sent another email. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your look at non-Western Western episodes, although I was practically chomping at the bit for you to get to Spectre of the Gun, before realising you covered it in your Best of Trek episode a while back. The greatest American hero episode has always stood out to me due to the presence of John Hart. My dad is a huge Lone Ranger fan and raised me as such, so anything Lone Ranger has me at a low. I will admit I'm more of a Clayton Moore guy. I've always thought that Hart was just a fill-in for the real deal, but it works well here. I was a huge Greatest American Hero fan and was pleasantly surprised to find it held up so well to the grown-up Chris. Just a well-written and well-acted series. Fistful of Data is indeed a fun romp. With its huge number of episodes in the can, the next generation could afford to let its hair down at some point, and I'm glad they did. I'm glad I'm also not the only one who felt that Marina Sirtis was done no favours by the wardrobe department on that show. She looked far better when they finally put her in a Starfleet uniform. I knew Brent Spiner from a recurring role on Night Court, where he played a stereotypical redneck, so I knew he had some comedic chops. In your A-Team clip, Face asks Murdoch if he's Rex the Wonder Dog again. I wonder if Kennell or any of his staff were fans of that old DC comic from the 50s. Probably not. Fun episode, as always, Chris. Uh, well, thank you very much, Chris. I enjoyed doing the cowboy one. Uh, the, the next one of them I've come up with, and I'm, I'm quite struggling with this one, so maybe people can help me. I want to do episodes of TV shows that didn't have the star in at all. And so far I've only come up with three. I've come up with an episode of The Incredible Hulk that didn't have Bill Bixby in. An episode of The A-Team that didn't have Mr. T in. 
and an episode of Galactica 1980 that had none of the regulars in apart from Long Green. Uh, and then I've struggled. Maybe I'll just do it on those three. Who knows? Uh, Luke Giaconetti's emailed in about the spectacular, spectacular Spider-Man Andy. Just finished up your episode covering season one of the spectacular Spider-Man. I wanted to share some thoughts on this nifty but unfortunately seemingly forgotten series. I too was a big fan of Spider-Man and his amazing friends along with its blockmate, the Incredible Hulk. These two shows introduced me to most of the major concepts of the Marvel Universe and are still a hoot to watch. There are a couple of lines from that series which my brother and I still use for bizarre effect. Namely, like they say in department stores, charge it lady, webhead asking Storm to use her lightning power, and hurry, he's making Swiss cheese out of this door, Iceman as the werewolf bashes his way through a door in Count Dracula. Castle Dracula, sorry. I'm a big fan of the 90s Spider-Man series as well. When Sony crowed during the build-up to Amazing Spider-Man 2 that they wanted to make a universe around Spider-Man, to me the only non-comics media to ever make a true universe about Spidey was the 90s cartoon. No matter how far and wide we got into the larger Marvel universe, it truly was grounded in Peter's trials and tribulations, and they managed to do all sorts of characters they had no business getting away with on Fox at the time, including Venom, Carnage, Blade, Morbius and the Punisher. And he ran for 65 episodes without Spider-Man throwing a single punch, instead using his webs and his wits to get out of trouble. To me, the show remains the perfect counterpart to the 90s Spider-Man comics, and remains a favourite. Spectacular Spider-Man reminded me a lot of the Ultimate Spider-Man comic series in its over-reliance of the concept of That's Familiar. Like you say, having everyone know each other before they get superpowers is streamlining, very similar to what the Ultimate Universe did. It's convenient for the plot, but does not really hold up to scrutiny. Eddie Brock, for me, is the most ridiculous example of this particular trope, because, come on, Eddie Brock knows Peter Parker? Bah! And he's a lab assistant? Double bah! All that having been said, Spectacular Spider-Man is a superlative show. The animation was crisp and clean, the characters shined, and they were not afraid to mix things up when the story called for it, like the shocker being combined with Montana. All of the characters equipped themselves nicely, and the action sequences are generally dynamic and exciting. And it was close enough to the Lee Ditko comics in certain ways to give it a much different vibe than the 94 series. I did not hesitate to pick up the series on DVD as soon as I saw it, and look forward to watching it with my kids. It remains highly superior to the Ultimate Spider-Man series which followed. I never thought that the 94 Spider-Man was a reaction to Batman the Animated Series, mostly because it took a very different approach. Batman the Animated Series was distilled down to the absolute most basic building blocks to tell standalone stories. Spider-Man, like Spectacular, leaned heavily on ongoing storylines and episode-to-episode continuity. Of course, there is ripe food for thought here. Is that not the essential classic difference between DC and Marvel? The use of ongoing subplots from installment to installment was one of the hallmarks of the Marvel Age of Comics, so one could argue this was simply the Marvel version of said basic building block distillation. Maybe. Anyway, thanks for taking a little time to shine a spider light on this much-missed series. Luke, P.S. Yes to an Alien Nation episode. I'm very tempted to do an Alien Nation episode. It would mean involve watching the series again. And the uh, reunion telefilms, which I've never seen. Gord Tolton is emailed in. Hello, Gord. Hi, Andy. Boss Palace show on Kelly themes. Keep it up. Ending with the Wonder Woman theme was excellent. It's just too bad that the quality of the theme, and the wonder that was Linda Carter, didn't ultimately translate to the quality of the actual show. Both promised fun. The theme did, anyway. Linda also promised fun, but probably in a different way. I've said too much. Since you enjoy westerns, I wanted to share with you the theme to a Canadian-made western that aired on the CTV network in the late 80s, 90s, called Border Town. It was a weekly 30-minute series featuring a fictional town straddling the 49th parallel in what would today be the international border between the province of Alberta and the state of Montana. 
The opposing law officials were a Northwest Mounted Police Corporal and a Deputy U.S. Marshal, former Texas Ranger, who shared an office and stereotypical hijinks ensued. Border Town will never be mistaken for Lonesome Dove, but it was fun, despite the fact it was filmed in the mountains of Maple Ridge, British Columbia, far from its true dry prairie setting. It shows up sometimes in markets such as the Disney Channel and there are episodes on YouTube. However, it had a great theme. And Gord sent me the link to the theme, which was really quite cool. It was very harmonica-like, which is what you think of when you think of a Western. I agree and lament the demise of the TV theme, continues Gord. Perhaps you could do a bit sometimes on a revival show that is at least wise enough to use the iconic entry of its generational cousin, Hawaii Five-O. Yours always, God, Telton. Well, thank you. Thanks for the link as well, God. That that was quite a fun little theme, too. I don't know, I may watch a couple of episodes of the series if I ever get ten minutes on YouTube where I've got nothing to do. Final email before we knock it on the edge. Your podcast, The Songs That Make the Whole Wood Sing, or Home, which is also from Chris Franklin, who was busy this week. Hello, Andy. I love this episode so much, I listened to it twice. It works as a podcast episode and a mixtape that would make even Star-Lord envious. I'll save you the point-by-point breakdown on each, but needless to say, I love a good chunk of what you chose for this list. As a fairly recent convert to Hoovenism, our family came into the Doctor's Adventures while Smith was wrapping things up, but man, I Am the Doctor was indeed the pitch-perfect song to go with Smith's quirky bombasticness. I still miss the guy and this tune. The music from the 60s Spider cartoon still runs in my head, especially when I dig out my old Marvel Tales reprints of the Lee Ditko days. The theme song is just perfect, and they've never come close to replacing it. It is to Spidey what John Williams' theme is to Superman. I'm with you on the Batman-Superman Adventures theme, a perfect blend of both characters. Michael Bradley uses it on his Superman-Batman podcast, oddly enough. My mum would usually get up and leave the room before the Lonely Man end theme to The Incredible Hulk played. She'd well up every time if she sat through it, but then she'd cry over Hallmark card commercials. The Flash theme is similar to Elfman's Batman work, but that locomotive feeling to it says Flash. Still a favourite of mine. Nothing will make Cindy squeal like a little girl like hearing the Wonder Woman TV theme. That's why I used it so much in our recent Supermates episode covering the show and recent comic adaptation plug. You don't have to sneak that in. That was a great episode. Though. The thing with the Wonder Woman show, um, I can't, it didn't really go into heavy run, re, rerun rotation over here. It was heard in the 70s and 80s and then it just went away. Unlike The Incredible Hulk, which heard on a network throughout the uh, the 70s, the 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s. Wonder Woman just disappeared, so I kind of subscribed to the same mindset, hive mind thing that everybody else has about that show, that it's it's a bit campy and a bit silly, but Linda Carter fills the uniform out well. But um, around Christmas time last year, the Horror Channel, of all places, started airing episodes of it, and I caught a number of them. And the show's a lot of fun. I know it's not groundbreaking, like you said in the show. Scripts could probably be interchanged between the Bionic Woman and Police Woman and any other, Charlie's Angels, any other of, of that kind of ilk. But it's a lot of fun to watch. You know, the World War II episodes, I think, are better than the 70s set episodes, because the 70s set episodes have that talking computer, is it Ira? But, you know, don't underestimate watching something just because it's fun. Because I don't think there's a lot of that anymore. So the Wonder Woman series was really good. Uh, it's a really fun show and you did a really good episode about it. See, I didn't do Point From Point Closes Chris, although I came close. Great episode. Thanks for giving me an awesome soundtrack for my day at work. Well, you are very, very welcome, Mr. Franklin. Next time on the Palace of Glittering Delights, I'm going to look at another thing that the internet fan think is currently saying is bad. 
there seems to be a groundswell at the moment that says, eh, you know that Buffy the Vampire Slayer first season is not really very good, is it? Uh, and I'm going to watch all of the first season and basically report back on whether I agree with them or not. So look forward to that dropping as soon as I've finished watching all 12 episodes and typed up a few little notes about it. Thank you for joining me for this one, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.